Remain standing, if you will, and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19 and, and verse 1. And let me say that since you know by now how I preach in terms of I don't skip passages, if you took the time to read what was coming and you're still here, thank you. This is one of those passages that is it's a hard one. And so thank you for being here. May God give us grace as we look at it now. 19, Genesis 19 and verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the floor for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. It, it is, is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray for you to come and speak to us through your word. Make it effective in our hearts. Cause us to listen, convict, remind us of the hope of the gospel. Lift our eyes up to see Jesus today, I pray in his name. Amen. 
Please be seated. Well, as I mentioned, it's not only a difficult passage to read, but it's also a difficult passage to study because in it are some pretty horrible things. And yet you may wonder why the sermon title is, The Lord Knows How to Rescue the Godly from Trials. Well, those are not my own words. Those come from 2 Peter chapter 2. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, Lot calls, or Peter calls Lot righteous three times. Let me say that again. 2 Peter 2, Peter calls Lot righteous three times. And in this phrase, about Lot, implies that he's godly. And yet, from what we've just read, it's incredibly difficult to understand that. To understand a man who would do what he did to be called righteous or godly. We've seen Lot's struggles as we've witnessed the accounts of him moving through Genesis. You remember when Abraham first suggested that they split up for the sake of their herds and grazing, that what did Lot do? Even as the younger nephew, he took the prime real estate for himself. I think any of us would look at that and at best call that immature, if not a little unkind to his gracious uncle. And then as we move along, Lot's no longer living with Abraham, but he went in the direction of the east, we're told, towards Sodom. And then the next time he's mentioned, he's living next to Sodom. And then in today's text, we find he's no longer living in a tent at all. He's living in a house. He's bought a home inside the walls of Sodom. And even more, we see him where? At the gate. The gate of the city was where those who governed the city sat. It was a position of honor. And so here, Lot has worked his way into the city life of Sodom, and he has... He's a city councilman. I don't know what, was, what, the, what the title was, but there he is sitting as a ruler over this city. Lot had been afforded the covenant blessings of being a part of Abraham's family. If you remember, Abraham saved Lot, didn't he, when the kings of the east came in. That was not Lot's right. And, and if you think of what Lot experienced in that, because Abraham shouldn't have defeated. We know, as we looked at that account, earlier in Genesis, that the numbers far you know, outweighed Abraham's forces. Abraham, from a human standpoint, shouldn't have won the battle. We know that it was God who did that. And so Lot has witnessed the might and the power of God, and yet here he is living in Sodom and sitting as a ruler. I think at this point, what any of us would like to see is some sign of life, some sign of spiritual life. Some sign of faith in Lot. And while there are some noble things here, the hospitality, the desire to save and protect these visitors, there's also some really horrible things. We strain to see anything good. But thankfully for Lot, and let me say thankfully for you and for me, that how how we stand before God is not dependent on any one action. In fact, it's not dependent on our works, is it? If it were dependent on our works, could any of us stand? No. And so, while our tendency is to look at horrible things like this, whether we're looking at the sin of Sodom or we're looking at the sin of Lot in this case, and let's be honest, we kind of look down our noses a little bit. I'm not that, I would never do that. And this self-righteousness kind of creeps up in our hearts. 
we should certainly call Lot's sin what it is. It's sin. To uh, the, 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 any father who would offer his daughters up in this way is certainly uh, acting in sin. And yet, no sin is beyond the reach of God's grace. Even that. No sin that Lot did, no sin that you have done or I have done is beyond what God can forgive. In fact, the heinousness of Lot's sin only serves to magnify the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the worth of His blood in His atonement for our sins. You might imagine there's more to the story and there is. Let me read from 2 Peter chapter 2. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was, tor- he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So there's part of the story there, even though there's, there's a hint that he was bothered by the wickedness and calling it out. Lot did call out wickedness. Moses gives us that in this account. There's also more to the story that Peter tells us that Moses doesn't. That Peter was indeed troubled in his soul. That he was distressed over the wickedness that he saw. He was tormented. And yet, why he stayed, or why he was there in the first place, still leaves us scratching our heads. I'm saying all this up front because I don't want the sermon for this passage to feed any of our pride. And I feel like that's an easy tendency, as I've already mentioned, for it to happen when we see wickedness in a passage, is for us to begin to look and say, I'm not that bad. When those voices begin to emerge in our hearts, we have to squash them with the gospel. We have to squash those voices with the gospel. Those voices are there. We've talked about the little legalist, you know, he rears his little head and and, and wants to convince us that we're somehow saved by our works or somehow our works earn favor before God or somehow we're a little better than those people or that person. And we could start with there but for the grace of God go I and that's not a bad place to start, but we have to go beyond that because there but for the grace of God go I is just acknowledging that it's just acknowledging total depravity, that we could be worse than we are. And that potential is certainly there in any of our hearts. We have to get to the gospel, though. We have to both remember our sin, but we also have to remember God's saving love. We have to remind ourselves of this when those voices that come up. Because that's what happens when we sin. We are forgetting the great salvation that is ours, the display of God's love toward us in Christ when we sin. It says James said to be hearers of the word and not doers. He said it's like someone who looks in a mirror and then forgets what he saw. That's what we do and that's our battle. I mean, we, we know the truth and we, and we hide it away and yet we get in the throes of life and we're so easily thrown off track by temptation and sin. Why? Because we forget what is ours in Christ. So remembering first that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have not only sinned, but we continue to struggle against sin in our lives today. And yet we must also remember that Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The it is finished of the gospel, that our sins have been paid for. The gospel is our only hope in life, and the gospel is our only hope in understanding this passage or making sense of this passage. So I'm saying all of that up front so that we don't go through this looking down our noses at either Lot 
or the Sodomites. And so beginning in verse 1, we see these two angels who we've already been introduced to. They came with the Lord to make the visit to Abraham. And as the Lord and Abraham continued their conversation that we looked at last week, the angels left in the direction of Sodom. And so now we pick up with them. They're now arriving on scene. And they find Lot sitting at the city gate. And Lot, like Abraham, showed this tremendous hospitality that uh, the Middle East is still known for to this day and uh, invites them in. But there's something strangely different about this hospitality that he shows than what Abraham showed. You, you, you notice that it's different. He says right away, turn aside to my house. There's a sense of urgency. And then he says, so that you can rise up, you know, come and rest, wash your feet, so that you can rise up and leave early in the morning. This is not normal. And when the visitors kind of push back and say, oh, no, we'll just, we'll just stay in the square. We'll sleep there in the, the middle of town. He presses them hard, the text says uh, in verse 3. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. His strange behavior, of course, was for a reason. Lot knew. He knew what would happen. Um, he wouldn't have acted this way if he didn't. So he is making his best effort, in a sense, to protect them but also to keep their visit a secret. He's thinking to himself, if no one knows they're here, then maybe nothing bad will happen. Come, get into my house quick, and I'll get you out of here first thing in the morning, and maybe nothing will happen. But of course, that's not what happened. That was an honorable thing that he did, but the secret didn't stay secret very long. And before they could even go to bed, they hear the voices outside. In verse 4, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and here Moses as the narrator is very purposeful in helping us to understand this wasn't just a segment, this wasn't just a gang, the whole city was a gang. The entire town had been infested and infected by sin, and that's what sin does. It's what sin does in Sodom, and it's what sin does in our own lives. When we become lax towards sin, when we don't fight against it, when we tolerate it, or we have or accept pet sins, like sins that we don't think are that big of a deal, sins that we think maybe are our right because life is hard. Sin infests and it infects. And it doesn't just affect us, it affects those around us. It affects our relationships, our family, our co-workers, our friends. It alters our perception of reality because sin in and of itself is deceptive. And it snowballs and grows. You know how a lie has to have more lies to cover it up and to keep it going. Or lust creeps deeper and deeper and lower and lower to find greater pleasure. So don't think then <clears throat> that this account of, of Sodom in Scripture is given to us simply so that we can gasp in horror at how awful these people are. Yet we can recognize that this is an awful thing that they're doing. But it isn't to stop there. The point of this being here is for us to examine our own hearts, for us to look inside, for us to consider our own sin, for us to fall in mer on the mercy of God to find grace when we're convicted. And so my hope and prayer for each of us today is that this, this account that we're looking at, as difficult as it is, would move us toward repentance, that we would walk in repentance, a life of repentance, because all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So the sin of Sodom erupts uh, in this attempt to take advantage and abuse these visitors of Lot. And Lot, again, I think in an honorable fashion, leaves the safety of his home. He goes out, 
closes the door behind him and begins to try and reason with these men. But there's no reasoning with them, is there? As we've already said, sin is deceptive. Sin is blinding. And I want to say this especially for our young people. When the Bible tells us to flee from sin, it's for a good reason. Because you cannot negotiate with those who would desire to tempt you. There's no reasoning. Logic doesn't come into the equation. Sin is self-deceptive. Sin is not reasonable. Sin is not logical. There is a time simply to flee. And I think we could all agree that Lot would have done well to have fleed a long time ago. Well, the visitors have none of Lot's pleading. They don't want to hear it. And so in desperation, Lot does this terrible thing of offering his daughters. And let me say again, this is horrible. This is awful. There's no sugarcoating this. There are scholars who have suggested reasoning and legal uh, kind of uh, argumentation. I'm not going to get into that. Some of it could be defensible in terms of the legal argumentation, but it's still sin. There's no justification for this, even though we might try and understand what his mind, in his mind, he was trying to do. A father's first priority ought to always be protection for his children, always. Well, the men of Sodom had nothing to do with that. They wanted something far more grievous, far more devious. They want something more depraved even than this. And so then they began attacking Lot, calling him a sojourner. You're not one of us. You're not from around here. You're an alien who came in and you're going to serve as the judge for us. You can hear the sarcasm in their tone. You can't judge me. You ever heard that? It's an argumentation a lot of people will use sometimes. Sometimes we, we talked about this at men's Bible study this week. Probably the most often quoted scripture by non-believers is, Judge not lest ye be judged. There's a lot to be found in that, that thinking. People can imply by saying that you're not the judge of me, or I don't submit to any judge, or you're not better than me, or I want to rule my own life. We could add to that list. But what we have to be mindful of is even though we're not appointed judges, Jesus did say, judge not, lest ye be judged. We know that there is a judge. And there's a difference. You can imagine two little children at school at the ice cream freezer, and one is trying to pocket the goods while the other one's trying to warn him to stop. And so the kid says, don't judge me. Now, in our day and age, it's becoming increasingly acceptable to to step back and be like, oh, okay, all right, sorry, didn't mean to judge, you know, take the ice cream. When all the while the other kid's going, dude, I'm not judging you. The principal's over there looking straight at you. See, there's a difference in that. Now, judging someone in our hearts, it is a matter of the heart. And that's something that we're called not to do in our hearts, to judge against someone. But it doesn't mean we don't call sin, sin. And it doesn't mean we don't tell other people that there is a judge and that he sees all, and that he knows all, and that one day he will return to judge. It's the same way if you saw someone breaking into your neighbor's house and you called 911. It's not because you're judging the person. It's because you recognize, I mean, you could be, but it's not necessarily, and probably not that you're judging them. You're probably thinking what the Ten Commandments say, not the part about don't steal, but I'm talking about how the Ten Commandments are summed up, to love your neighbor as yourself. Because what would you want if someone was breaking into your house? You would want your neighbor to call 911 to come and to stop the crime. And so that, that is the guidance that we need. When, we, when, when people throw that in our face, don't judge me. 
bring the law back in. This is a good use of the law. Love others the way you would love yourself. Love others the way, treat others the way that you would want to be treated. That summary of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the guidance we ought to use in terms of not judging other people. But it doesn't mean that we don't call sin, sin. We do call it for what it is. Well, Lot is threatened with being a judge. Uh, his life is probably in danger. I mean, this was a violent mob. And at this point, his two visitors reach out, grab him, and bring him back in. And it's this point that I think Lot must have begun to realize these are not mere men. And if he didn't realize at this point, he knew what happened next when they struck everyone outside with blindness. And he now knows that these are not simply men. And then the rush is on to get out of town. The people of Sodom have proven themselves unrepentant, and so the angels are again encouraging Lot to gather his family. And they say, they include this, if you have any sons-in-laws, recognizing that Lot had these two daughters, they think in terms they must have been old enough to have been betrothed, and they were. And so they send him out to go and bring these sons-in-laws along. Now, because the narrator has told us that it was every man who was at the door, then these sons-in-laws were included in that group. So they were a part of the mob. They were part of the group that was struck with blindness. And even after having all that experience, what is their reaction? They think Lot's joking. That's what sin does. Sin blinds us to our blindness. Sin is deceptive. And so Lot gives up. He comes back home. It's morning now. The angels again urge Lot, it's time to go. you got to get out of here. And in verse 16, Lot hesitates. Again, it's a head-scratcher. Why in the world is Lot hesitating? He, after all that he's seen, it's time to go. It is time to get out of here. And so what do the angels do? There's no more negotiating. They seize him and his wife and daughters by the hand, and they take them outside of the city. And wedged in between that narration the, Moses writes, the Lord being merciful to him. The Lord being merciful to him. That is, that would be my thesis statement of this entire chapter. The Lord being merciful to him. Lot wasn't saved because he made wise decisions, because he didn't. Lot wasn't saved because of his good deeds, because it's hard to find any in here. Lot wasn't saved because he was a good guy, or whatever you want to describe Lot was saved by the mercy of God because God showed him mercy. And this is good news for all of us because all of us are sinners and all have fallen short of the glory of God. If all of our secret thoughts and deeds were put on display, we would cower in shame. But like Lot, we who have put our faith in Jesus have experienced the Lord being merciful to us. Why do I say that Lot put his faith in Jesus? Well, Lot was called righteous. Lot was called righteous, and we're told even of Abraham previous to this, back in chapter 15, that Abraham believed God and he credited it to him as righteousness. See, our Old Testament fathers and mothers looked forward to the promised Messiah. They put their hope in the one who was promised to come, and they were saved through faith, just as we are saved through faith. We just look backwards. We know the name Jesus. They didn't know the name, but they trusted God and trusted God would keep his promise. And this is what we're told in Peter then that Lot had indeed done. He was called righteous. 
We're all saved the same way. And it is good news for us because then it doesn't matter in the sense of what has, what's in our past. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter what you've thought in secret because God in His great mercy can deliver people like Abraham and Lot and declare them righteous by grace through faith. Then no one is beyond the reach of His saving arm. You who have yet to put your faith in Jesus today, Today is the day of salvation. You haven't sinned too much to be delivered. You're not beyond the rescuing arm of Christ. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, Scripture calls us, and you will be saved. The one whose saving arm rescued Lot and his family, who sees them, the Lord being merciful to them, now spreads his table out before us today. This is the table of rescue. This is the table of deliverance. It's the table of the mercy of our Lord. Because in this meal, we're reminded of that our sins, past, present, and future, have been dealt with. Again, that finality of it is finished. This table is a call for us to repent, to walk in repentance, to continue to live lives of repentance. And it's a table that points us to what has been done for us in Christ. His body pierced, His blood shed for our sins. It's it's for our benefit. It's not simply a reminder. It is a refresher. It is a nourisher. It is to take us and teach us in a new way today all that is ours in Christ. So that today as we come to the table, we can together say with one voice to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare ourselves now for this, I do pray that we would taste and see that you're good, even as we look at at an account, uh, multiple accounts of, of horrific things. Lord, would you cause the eyes of our heart to turn inward and consider our own sin? And where we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you draw us in repentance to confess that and to turn away from it? Deliver us from sin, Lord. Help us to flee from it. To not get comfortable. To not have pet sins. To not tolerate sin in our lives. And yet, while we're reminded it's a fight, it's a battle, it's one that doesn't end in this life, Lord, may we not forget the the, the good news that in Christ, our sins have been nailed to the cross and we bear the weight of them no more. We are declared righteous, no longer guilty, and we are able to stand before you. And so take these truths and work them deeply into our hearts and minds that we would walk in strength and in faith in Christ alone, I pray in his name. Amen.